Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to our very first ever Indie Thinker Live. As you could hear, we have a live studio audience with us here today, so um, they will come into play a little bit later. They'll be able to ask uh, some questions of our guests, and I'll introduce him here in just a moment, but they'll be able to ask some questions, any questions that they want to ask of our guest here today. And our guest is going to be speaking about the pro-life issue. We're going to be talking about lots of different things in that whole milieu. We'll be talking especially about kind of debate and not just conversation, but also having debates about the issues of pro-life. And also, too, what do you do in a debate or in a conversation with the person that you're speaking to? even though you've given them irrefutable evidence, is not willing to change their position. Something I'm really excited about talking to him about because very often I think we can relate to that. When we have conversations, we give evidence, we give facts, it still doesn't move the person that we're speaking to. So, so what do we do about that? So uh, I think it's going to be a fantastic conversation. I can't wait to hear their questions. Now, before we jump into any of that, I just want to do a couple of things. First of all, I want to I introduce a couple of people to you. The first person I'd like to introduce is I would like to introduce one of our sponsors to you. Um, in fact, Kevin Blair is here with us in the audience tonight, and uh, some members of the Kevin Blair team are as well. And so I want to introduce them to you because they've supported us pretty much almost from the beginning of what we've done here at IndieThinker. And uh, these guys are absolutely fantastic. I want you to support what Kevin does, but I also want you to support Kevin because I think we should band together and support people who support our values as much as we possibly can. So um, if you have any real estate mortgage needs, Element Funding is your one-stop shop for all of your real estate mortgage needs. Uh, maybe there's some people already in here today because the housing market is absolutely nuts and they've, <laughs> they've used Kevin. But I can just tell you this, not only does Kevin support the values that you stand for, but, uh, but Kevin absolutely will give you phenomenal customer service. So if you're looking to buy a house, you want to build a house, or you're maybe just going into the real estate market in another capacity, Kevin will absolutely help you. So please check them out, elementfunding.com. Now, the next person I'd like to introduce is because we have a studio audience here today, we also, uh, we also have some, some heroes in the crowd. So I want to make sure to mention if you are a part of a pregnancy resource center, if you're a staff, if you're a volunteer, or maybe you're supporting those guys, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being heroes. Thank you for standing in the gap. Thank you for protecting life and saving lives. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are heroes to me. I need to give a round of applause. 100%. Um, all right. So uh, also, I, I want to uh, just ask one last thing of you guys here today is uh, we just started Indie Thinker about three to four months ago, so relatively new. But I firmly believe that not only conversation is the cure for so much of what's going on in our world today, but I believe information is power. And if you believe in being engaged in, in, being engaged in the culture, and if you believe in really making a difference, then I want to encourage you to do something. We need your help. Would you go on our YouTube page, YouTube, dot com forward slash indie thinker or go on our instagram at the indie thinker or facebook and would you make sure to like our page and would you subscribe and then would you even go one step further 
if anything that we do has been a blessing to you, if it's helped you stay informed, would you, would you share some of that content? Because if it has helped you, it can potentially help other people. So if we're gonna make a difference, we gotta do this together. So we really need your help to come alongside of IndieThinker and to help us with that. It's really simple, it doesn't take much of your time. You guys are on social media anyway. I saw some of you before you came in today on your phone. So please do us that, that big favor, it'll mean a lot to us and it will help our algorithms. We're kind of fighting that as it is. I'm sure many of you guys understand, I know Mark does, that, um, that if you have pro-life conservative content of, of, of any kind of stripe, really of Christian content, you're gonna fight against censorship. So you guys can help us fight against that by doing a couple things. By commenting on our post, by liking our posts and sharing our posts. It ups the algorithms and it makes more people see it when you do that. And then you can also even do one step further. This will take two minutes. I promise you can rate our podcast either on Apple or you can go to our website, indiethinker.org. That would be a huge, huge blessing to us because you guys know internet trolls exist and they are more passionate sometimes than we are about rating stuff. So uh, if you would do that for us, that would make a huge difference. And again, it does help that content get into the hands of other people. So I appreciate you guys being willing to do that for us. Thank you so much. All right, so without further ado, I wanna introduce our guest today, Mark Newman. Mark Newman is a common interviewee. He is a banquet speaker. He has been on programs like Fox News and many others. He is also a pro-life apologist and a bioethicist. Some of you are thinking, what in the world are those things? We'll talk about that in just a minute. And he is also the author of this new book, Contenders, fantastic book. And it is all about how you can develop a strategy for engaging the world on the issue of pro-life. So Mark, thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure, thanks for having me. Well, Mark, I can't thank you enough for being here. I'm really excited to have you just because you are one of the most renowned speakers and uh, just kind of uh, minds in the pro-life space. So I really do believe that we need to have fact-based conversations about the issue. Um, so we're gonna jump into a little bit of that. Before I do that, um, I, I wanna make mention of the fact that you just moved to Tennessee. Of course, we're out of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and so you just moved to God's country. Amen. Um, <laughs> What did you hate the most about California, and um, how much better is Tennessee than California? you got to remember, this is going to be seen by my friends who are still in California, so True. we have to be judicious here. Um, let's just say that when I saw the handwriting on the wall and that Governor Newsom was going to be elected, we began looking for the exits. Yeah. Enough said? You guys understand? Yes. Uh, I'd, we'd lived out here in, in Tennessee earlier. Uh, but then uh, my father and my mother-in-law were having health issues, so we went back to California to do uh, elder care for about five years. And as, after my father passed away, within a year, I think our house was sold and we were back here. And you're in Sevierville? I'm in Sevierville. Yeah. Okay, mm -hmm. great, yeah. So you, you moved to like uh, one of the funnest parts, I guess, of uh, uh, the it's, most It's fun. intriguing to drive down the road to your house and feel like you're going through Disneyland every <laughs> single day, yes. The most countrified version of Disneyland that yes, can, can be. Expected. It's lovely. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. So, um, just so our audience knows, and maybe even some of these guys, what is a bioethicist? <laughs> I feel like I'm on Jeopardy. Uh, <laughs> bioethicists are people who spend time trying to understand the philosophical underpinnings of uh, bioethical issues, and these would be things like the pro-life issue, embryonic stem cell research, end-of-life issues things like that. Okay. And so uh, the people that I work with, people like John Enser from Passion Life Ministries, Scott Klusendorf from Life Training Institute, uh, 
Um, we find ourselves with great regularity standing up in front of people and arguing on behalf of life, something you would think you wouldn't have to do. Hmm. And yet we live in a culture that is increasingly uh, in favor of putting very designated groups of people to death. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that, I would assume, as the program continues. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, pro-life apologist. So I feel like that one doesn't need any explanation either, like apologist. But I still think that there are people out there who think the word apologist means that you're saying sorry for stuff. A lot, yeah. So, uh, so what I is do, but pro-life that, That's called being a husband. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> An apologist is somebody who simply stands uh, in defense of something. Okay. Right? It comes from the Greek word apologia. And... Uh, so we just stand in defense. So when you talk about people being a pro-life apologist, we are the people who make arguments on behalf of, in this case today, on behalf of the unborn. Uh, but also, I think increasingly, it's going to be on behalf of people who are in the end stages of life. Awesome. Okay, now, um, I thought a lot about uh, how to ask this kind of next question because in, in chapter one of Contenders of your book, uh, you, you talk about, you, you say two words that have haunted me ever since, uh, ever since I read them. Uh, you say the words vacant lot. Mm -hmm. And they've haunted me because I, I believe that in what you're saying there is something that is so relevant. It probably is the reason that Indie Thinker exists, but it's so relevant, especially to Christians, but maybe to everybody. And if I could synthesize what vacant lot means, I would say it essentially means recognizing an existential threat before it's too late or before it um, affects you even personally. The recognizing that before it affects you personally, you need to be able to speak about it. When I say that there is, uh, and when I quote somebody else who said this, that there is a price to silence, essentially it's saying kind of the same thing. Um, so so I, I think that this is something that we all struggle with, but I definitely know spending the last 19 years of my life in uh, full-time Christian ministry, that this is something that Christians struggle with, with really identifying things that are threats and then stepping to the plate and actually doing something about those threats. So I think we are willfully ignorant for probably a myriad of reasons, which, which means I, we choose to, to not know. Um, but perhaps two are the most uh, prominent reasons. I think we're willfully ignorant because you just practically cannot know everything and you have to choose things not to know. Um, so I, I think that's one you know, kind of frugal way that we, we choo choose to be ignorant. But then I wonder about the second thing. I think some of us are ignorant of things that are happening in the world because we know that if we stare the devil in the face, we will, we will be responsible for knowing that information and then having to do something about it. So I really do wonder. I know we would never probably say that to ourselves, but, but we maybe subconsciously do know that we don't want to really dig into these issues because if we really see them for what they are, then we finally have to step to the plate and it demands a response. And I can't help but wonder if that's why so very often people like me, I'm going to have a confessional moment, people are like me. For the past 19 years of my life, I would have told you that I was pro-life because mm -hmm. I became a Christian at 19 years old and then have served the Lord to the best of my ability in full-time ministry. You checked the box. Yes. Mm -hmm. I checked the box, but I was theoretically pro-life because all I would do was tell you that I was pro-life, but there was no practical way in which I was acting upon my pro-life stance, except going to church and hearing it once a year if on a Sunday. Lucky. If you're lucky, you, saw, yeah. you heard it that often. So, yeah. so the point is, is, is when you wrote Vacant Law, it really resonated with me. And, and Indie Thinker, I think, is the first time in my life where I've actually stepped to the plate and said, I'm going to address these issues head on, and I'm going to unflinchingly talk about this issue. 
Um, so when you wrote those words, vacant lot, wh what does it mean to you and why, why did you write them? And maybe it's not as powerful as, as it uh, has been for me, but it really, it really did kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Okay, I spent 33 years as a professor and most of my, uh, my academic focus was on uh, rhetorical criticism. And I will tell you, this is always fascinating to me, um, art always exceeds or transcends the intention of its maker. Mm. So what I was thinking about when I wrote the words vacant lot was next door to your church, there's a vacant lot. I'm really glad that you, <laughs> you unpacked that and all these other great things. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that the church frequently is way too reactive rather than active. Yeah. In other words, we spend our time reacting to what other people do rather than just moving forward ourselves uh, with our own plans uh, to make the world uh, yeah. a more Christ-like place. We just wait for other people to do things and then we respond to it. And so in the example that I give in the book, I say, well, what if your church is next to a vacant lot and suddenly people begin to build on that lot? And uh, the first example that I give is what if uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints builds a church there and you share a parking, uh, share a parking lot almost with them. You just a thin strip of grass separates the two of you. And uh, they begin really filling up their parking lot, tons of people. They begin talking to the people at your church. And after a while, you notice that, you know, because they're really nice people, you know, their kids are nicely dressed and very friendly, real family-oriented. They begin talking to your congregants, and after a while, you notice some of your congregants heading over there. You notice some of your teenage girls hanging out with the uh, good-looking elders, you know, who are 19. And, uh, <laughs> but they're always sharply dressed. They are sharply dressed, and every girl's crazy about a sharp-dressed man. So uh, wow. they find their way over there, and, uh, and I ask pastors when I, I train pastors, and I say, well, what would you do? And the pastor suddenly, well, I would be getting up and I'd be talking about the deity of Jesus Christ and identifying the distinctions between Orthodox Christian doctrine and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. And I say, okay, let's change the scenario a little bit. Let's say you've got a vacant lot, but instead of it being built on by an LDS church, let's say it's being built on, well, for the, for the sake of political correctness, let's call it um, a Middle Eastern religious group. And they build the place up and, you know, and, and the people there, they fill it up and, and they start talking to your people and say, hey, you know, your church says it's got the answer to life's most pressing questions, but they don't. We do. You having problems with your boyfriend? Come on over. You don't think you're going to get that scholarship? Come on over. Oh, you think your life is going to end because of the circumstances of your life? Don't worry. Come on over. But mm, bring your kids. Got to bring your kids. Mm -hmm. Okay, what would you do? You start losing members. What would you do? I asked pastors. And they get up and they say, well, I would start getting up and I would be talking about the distinction between Islam and Christianity. And I'd go, wait, 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 wait. I didn't identify the other place as Islamic. I am, however, referring to an ancient Middle Eastern god, the Punic gods of the Middle East, Molech, for example. And it's amazing when their psychology, the pastor's psychology begins to shift, yeah. and they start to recognize that what is going on in this fictional place that I'm talking about is in actuality taking place in abortion clinics throughout the United States every single day. And, and in the book, I don't have time to get into all the details, but unless you really want to, but uh, in the book we describe how modern-day abortion isn't like Molech worship. It is Molech worship, right? C.S. Lewis said uh, when he, in the screw tape letters, right, he said our, our orders from the high command at present are to conceal yeah. ourselves. And by, and by right? the way, just unpack Molech worship really quick if you can. Molech worship in the ancient Middle East um, – and by the way, uh, King Solomon had one of his wives, at least one, sacrifice some of his kids to Molech. Molech right. was a, uh, a Punic god in the Middle East. They had these huge, in high places, they would have these huge altars. There would be a large, it, it would have a bull's head, man's arms, 
and then in the belly it'd be rounded out and there'd be fire in there. And then uh, a parent would come up, they would have a problem in their life, right? They, uh, maybe their crop wasn't good or maybe they, needed, they had other kinds of fertility issues. They would bring their child up and the priest would take the child from the mother. They would be beating drums really loudly because it wasn't considered a good sacrifice if the mom cried or wailed, right? So they beat drums really, really loudly so they could not hear the screams of the child. Mm. The child would be killed and then the child would be placed into this big hole where the child's body would be incinerated. And that would be um, the offering to Molech. Nowadays, what we do is a girl has a problem with her life. Maybe she's going to lose her scholarship, her athletic scholarship, because she's pregnant. Maybe she is going to, uh, she thinks she's going to lose her boyfriend, right, because she's pregnant. Yeah. Uh, all of these reasons that people have. People always abort because they either want to maintain the life they've currently got or that they believe that having a child is going to keep them from having the life that they think is the life that they want. That's, so it, there's no distinction, really, between the reasons why people used to sacrifice their children back then and the reason why people are sacrificing their children today. Yeah. What happens? A woman comes in. She gets counseling. They take her back. They lay her on what is effectively an altar. I'm going to call it. It's a big stainless steel table. And then an abortionist comes in and is able to do something that no priest of Molech was ever able to do. Right? Priest of Molech, they didn't have the means to invade a woman's body and take the child in there. So instead, they beat drums to make it a silent experience for the woman. Now we simply take the child apart inside of the body of the mother, and her body muffles, right? And she can't see it because she's been sedated, yeah. right? And then they take that child out piece by piece. They put it out on a light board, make sure that they got it all. And 99% of the time, do you want to know what happens to that baby's body? It goes into a medical incinerator. It's the same thing. We just don't call it that. And before we get any farther, I do want to take just a moment and say, there are going to be a lot of things we're going to talk about here today, or this evening, that are going to be difficult to hear. And I want to make something abundantly clear. Do you know what the biggest barrier between many women in America is and the cross of Jesus Christ? It's the body of their unborn child. They have it in their heads somehow that once you've done something like this, there's no way you can ever be of any use to the kingdom. And nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah. So I'm just going to come right out and say, if you have abortion in your past, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're sitting here in the audience, if you have abortion in your past, and by that I mean you have had an abortion, you've helped someone get an abortion, you have counseled someone to go ahead and get an abortion, and you have this in your past, and maybe you've been carrying it around for 5, 10, 15, 25 years, I am telling you right now there is a way out for you. Yeah. If you feel crushed by the guilt of, of sin. That is the enemy trying to separate you from Jesus Christ, your Savior. And there are countless pregnancy resource centers all across America that offer post-abortion counseling and post-abortion Bible studies. And you can find, through confession and repentance, you can find forgiveness and healing and restoration. Nothing in your past is beyond the power of the blood of Jesus to forgive. Yeah. Amen. Amen. That's good. Thanks. Yeah. I, I'm glad you said that because we are going to be very honest. And, and I mean, the way the Bible explains Jesus is that the glory of God was full of grace and truth. Mm -hmm. And so we want to strike that balance today That's in right. everything that we talk about is that we want to be unapologetically truthful, but we also want to do it from a loving perspective because I, I can't help but wonder if sub this is again I, I think about the subconscious a lot i promise i don't have a degree to do so but i like to think about it but i can't help but wonder if subconsciously 
women have to double down on their affirmation if you're pro-choice, their affirmation of being pro-choice, especially if they have that in their past, because they have to protect their psyche from the acknowledgement that they actually murdered a baby in their womb. And so they have to consistently double down on their, on their pro-choice uh, stance just to protect themselves from the guilt that inevitably follows with, with admitting uh, what they've done when, when they performed an abortion. Well, we've got to start off, though, with the understanding that in the United States today, number one, almost nobody's ever seen an abortion, even though it's one of the most common surgical procedures in America. Almost no one has ever seen one. Yeah. Secondly, these women are being told over and over again that what's in their body from the moment of conception is nothing. It's a blob of tissue. It's an undifferentiated cell mass. It's just the uterine contents or the products of, of conception. That's what they tell them it is. And, and just to clarify, even if a woman was excited about her abortion, and I can show you evidence, we talk about it in the book, about people who say, man, when you, when you get to perform an abortion, it's exciting. It's very yeah. satisfying to perform, to perform real abortion. Shout your abortion. Um, I've got a an article in here from Salon Magazine where they're tying in with the Molech worship. At the end of it, she says, I admit that what's in, my bo- you know, what's in a woman's body is a life, but it's a life worth sacrificing. Hmm. And actually uses that word, which I found rather chilling when I came across it. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that it's important for people to recognize, first and foremost, there, there are very few questions we have to answer in the pro-life movement. People will say this is a complex issue. Folks, it is not a complex moral issue. It is surrounded by complexities like life complexities, but the issue itself is not a very complicated issue. Um, my friend Scott Klusendorf, uh, Greg Cunningham, and others have modified versions of what Scott calls the syllogism, which you've probably heard many times. I know you interviewed Seth Gruber, but since we have a live audience, let me repeat it for you. It's really sure. simple. It's in three short sentences. Each one of these sentences makes up a part of a deductive syllogism. For those of you who remember your philosophy class, right? A syllogism is an argument where if the premises are true, and if the argument is validly constructed, the conclusion is inescapable. So here is this syllogism. It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Now, almost everybody will simply stipulate that, right? And if they won't, just you know, move away slowly. Okay? <laughs> uh, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Now, this is where you get some pushback. But if those two statements are correct, if it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being and abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, the only conclusion you can come to is that abortion is wrong. Simple enough. Where people get into uh, difficulty, though, is when we start to look at that second premise. So the question then becomes, what I would have to prove then, right, is that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. I'd have to prove that what's in a woman's body from the moment of conception is an innocent human being, and I would have to prove that abortion kills that innocent human being. I can show you a number of nationally used embryology textbooks. The one that comes to mind is uh, Moore, Persaud, and Torsh's book, The Developing Embryo, Clinically Oriented Embryology. And in that book, they identify conception, the moment when a uh, sperm cell meets and unites with an oocyte, and he says, this is the point at which every single one of our lives individually began, mm-hmm. right? So we know from embryology that every human life begins at conception, no other place. Now, here's the fun part. I love bringing these things. They're not the only ones who say this. As a matter of fact, I'm holding in my hands this wonderful little flip chart here, and it is called the gift of life. Hopefully you can see that in the camera. You can zoom in later on if you like, or we can send you a PDF. The gift of life is a flip chart. 
And in this flip chart, published in 1951, this isn't a new embryology text, this is back in 1951. What do they say? Well, they say that if one of the male sperm meets and unites with an egg cell, a new life begins. Sound familiar? It's what more Prasadin Torcha is saying today. Now, who distributed this little flip chart? Why look? The Planned Parenthood Federation of America. They distributed this. Does Planned Parenthood know when human life begins? Absolutely they know. They used to teach it to everybody. Not only do they know when human life begins, this is a photocopy of a brochure called Plan Your Children for Health and Happiness. It is a brochure about birth control. It's built out of a question and answer format. So when they get to the question, birth control, is it an abortion? Listen to what Planned Parenthood told all women before the 1970s. This was their answer. Definitely not. An abortion kills the life of a baby after it has begun. It is dangerous to your life and health. It may make you sterile so that when you want a child, you cannot have it. Now, I got to tell you, when I've hauled this out in a debate, every once in a while a kid will look at this and go, oh, you probably just Photoshopped that. And I've been online and had people say, oh, you probably just Photoshopped that. You made it up. Everybody knows that's not true. So it makes it very inconvenient when I pull out an original. I happen to get off of eBay or someplace like that. Um, actually, abe.com. Cost me 40 bucks. No, you can't buy it. Um, <laughs> but it is from the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. And you might notice on the cover of this pamphlet for birth control, the child on the front is clearly of African descent. Mm -hmm. It's a black child. Yeah. And they're not the only ones, folks. Way back in 1970, three full years before the Roe versus Wade decision legalizing abortion, in California Medicine, in an essay called The New Ethic for Medicine and Society, I want to tell you what these guys said. I'm going to try to find my excerpt really quick. These folks are telling us right away that what they want to do is they want to separate us from the Judeo-Christian uh, idea that uh, human life, that, that, that the value of human life begins at conception because each and every one of us is created in the image of God. And listen to what they say. Since the old ethic, that's the old ethic, has not been fully displaced, it has been necessary to separate the idea of abortion from the idea of killing, which continues to be socially abhorrent. Imagine that. The result has been a curious avoidance of the scientific fact, which everyone really knows, that human life begins at conception and is continuous, whether intra- or extra-uterine, until death. The very considerable semantic gymnastics which are required to rationalize abortion as anything but the taking of a human life would be ludicrous if they were not often put forth under socially impeccable auspices. It is suggested by the authors that this schizophrenic sort of subterfuge is necessary because while a new ethic is being accepted, the old one has not yet been rejected. These folks have a new ethic, a new idea for you, and it's the idea that you are a resource that needs to be managed by your betters. In order to accomplish it, they say that we must reject the old ethic. And in order to do it, we are going to, they say, consciously lie about it. And we have to because all of those women who in the 1970s were running around in big stretchy shirts, had an arrow pointing down when they were pregnant, right? And over the top of it, it said, right, products of conception down here. No? No? Undifferentiated cell mass this way? No? <laughs> what did that arrow say? It said what? Baby. baby. Everybody knows it's a baby. Everybody knows. So they say in order to overcome that natural intuition, we are going to have to um, use all of the agencies at our disposal. So this would include education, entertainment, 
right? The government, medicine, and I hate to say it, clergy. Mm. And we're going to tell this lie often enough, and if we do, people will learn to believe it. Yeah. And if you look at web pages for, uh, for university um, medical centers that are talking about aspiration abortion, they won't even mention the existence. They won't even use the word embryo. They will simply say, we will void your uterus. Mm -hmm. We'll remove the uterine contents. Yeah. Don't even want to talk about it. it folks, it's an, an admission, yeah. Yes, an embryo, folks, is not a separate kind of a being. An embryo is no more, a, it's just a stage of development, just like you might want to talk about a newborn or a toddler or a teenager or a middle-aged adult. Embryo is just a stage in human development. You all began as an oocyte, every single one of you, and that little oocyte that you all used to be, you became an embryo, still you. You became a fetus, still you, right? You became a newborn, still you. You became a teenager, still you. It's always been still you. Even David Boonin in his book, A Defense of Abortion, in the preface, you know that part almost nobody ever reads? <laughs> I read yours, by the way. Oh, thank you. In the <laughs> preface of this book, he simply says, look, I've got pictures of my son Eli on, the, on my desk. He's playing yeah. at the beach, rolling around in the sand. Also have a picture of Eli in my desk drawer. It's a picture of Eli. It's an ultrasound picture of Eli. And he says, there's no doubt in my mind that this photo is of the exact same little boy. And he says, and there's no doubt at all that the argument that I present in this big fat book over here contends that it would have been morally permissible to have ended his life at the moment of the picture he has. Mm -hmm. Folks, this is the kind of thing that we're up against. Yeah. So, I mean, that's wonderful. And, and so here's the thing is when we look at that and we see the horrific nature of what abortion actually is, not just from a religious perspective, but from a scientific perspective. Um, and, and, and we see the literature of Planned Parenthood themselves admitting as much. Um, it, it's, it's bothersome to me that uh, that we do not have the kind of robust conversation that we need to have, I don't think, um, about these issues. Uh, and let me just give you kind of a for instance. So I've heard a lot lately, um, just because of how polarizing our world is becoming, yeah. um, from the mouth of Christians. Uh, well, you guys talk about abortion all the time, but how come we never talk about adoption? Um, or even other things like, even more asinine, I think, is this one, is uh, Christians should care about all stages of life, uh, not just the preborn. You know, why aren't we talking about immigration? Well, so here, what that, what that tells me is that um, willful, willful ignorance is coming into play again, and we are refusing to actually look at what is happening in our nation. A million babies are being murdered every single year. And as soon as something to that degree starts happening in our nation, you guys let me know. But uh, as far as I can tell, that's the only thing to that degree that's happening in our nation that is such a horrific tragedy and we have to respond. Yes. So the next thing I, I wanna kinda talk to you about is, is, okay, so what does that response look like? Now, I know it could look like a million different things, but I think the, the easiest barrier of entry here is that we need to get informed, we need to discuss and then we need to even debate. So I would like for you to kind of talk to me about discussion because I think the vast majority of people, when they hear debate, they're gonna be like, well, we shouldn't argue. We're Christians, we're supposed to love everybody. It's like, read a Bible and look at what Jesus did from time to time. But, um, but, but nonetheless, I, I think most people feel more comfortable with the verbiage of discussion. So, I, but even still Christians resist this. I wanna really underscore this before you answer because Christians resist discussion because they retreat to compassionate language 
for their cowardice. Very often, I may, I may be painting with broad strokes here, but very often we do this because Christians are afraid of offending people. Christians are afraid of being the stereotype judgmental Christian who beats people over the head with the Bible and they don't want to do that if they don't do anything. And therefore, when it comes to the issue of pro-life, very many Christians avoid the topic altogether because they don't want to bring guilt upon anybody or shame upon anybody if they have committed an abortion. And, uh, and then they don't want to get into a political topic. I can't tell you how many times I've heard uh, that, that we're not supposed to be political because we're Christians. Um, so, so why is it important to push in to the resistance that sometimes even I have about speaking to people about this issue that we know is a sticky topic? And let's be honest, guys. We know this is a sticky topic. If we talk about this at work, if we talk about this with friends, especially people we know who are on the other side of this issue, we know how ugly conversations can get. Why is it important that we still have conversations even though it can put tension, it can be divisive, and any number of other things that we might want to add to it? Why do we still need to have the conversation? Okay, well, there's a, tough, there's a ton of stuff in what you just said that I would need to unpack, so if I miss anything, remind me where we are. Okay. Let's go ahead and start with the idea of debate. Folks, we need to debate. As a matter of fact, I would argue that at every high school in America, and certainly if you are a part of a Christian high school, every single kid in your Christian high school should learn how to debate. If you ever want to see a return to civil discourse here in the United States, you better make sure your kids know how to debate. What debate does is it teaches students to look at both sides of an issue. When you, do, when you debate academically, we put out an issue, and you have to debate both sides of it. It's an amazing thing that happens when you start to understand why your opponents believe what they believe. And so when, uh, I would highly recommend that you would see the reintroduction of that. What we're doing is we're backing away from that. As a matter of fact, in a lot of colleges now, you can actually get a degree without ever having a speech class, yeah. which all that says to me is we're all retreating into ourselves. We're all becoming solipsists, right? Uh, I am the, uh, the arbiter of everything true, right? And then when we get into a, dis a discussion with somebody or a debate, we don't know how to engage yeah. in civil discourse. So I teach all of my students the same thing, and you'll, you'll find this here today. I do not attack people. I attack ideas. And when you attack ideas, you either better be able to defend your ideas, or if you want to live an intellectually consistent life, you give over your idea to the new idea until you gain more light and come up with something better. Right? I hate it when I talk with people and they say, I know you're wrong, but I can't tell you why. <laughs> okay? At that point, I say, no, then you don't know that I'm wrong. Yeah. Okay? So, um, so debate, I think, is very, very important. Why don't we do it? We don't like discomfort. Folks, if you don't like discomfort, you better find a different religion. If you're a Christian here in this room today, because if you want to make somebody uncomfortable, stand up in front of them and say, Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, and without, without his uh, death, burial, and resurrection, and our belief in him, no one has any hope of heaven. Yeah. And see what happens. Okay, The cross is an offense. Jesus said, um, everybody really liked me, and so when you talk about him, everybody's going to really like you too. Yeah. Is that what he said? Definitely won't crucify you. Yeah, no, no. He said they hated me, they're going to hate you. Now, you don't want them to hate you because you're a jerk, Yeah. right? So don't be a jerk. But when you tell people what is true, especially if that truth becomes inconvenient for them, mm -hmm. they are going to lash out. The other problem is that we have had, we've been living under, a, uh, under an academic regime who for 50 years or longer have been churning out professional pro- uh, pro, I hate to use the word pro-choice, abortion choice advocates, right? They have been using, they've been pumping them out. Why? Because they've been uh, teaching them all the precepts, 
No, because it's the default position. And what they've taught them is that all the cool kids think this, and if you don't think this, you're not one of the cool kids. Yeah. You're probably one of those right-wing extremist nut jobs. Okay? To which I say, bring it on. Let's take a look and see what your arguments are for defending that position. Always remember, they have to defend their position too. Yes. You're not the only one who has to defend a position. So it's important for us to lay some ground rules. And a lot of times when I talk to people, I, I simply say, look, if I can answer all of your questions about this, if I can provide you with compelling evidence from sources that you would accept, which I can do, by the way, without ever resorting to the scriptures. Yeah, I right? think that's important, by yes. the way. I can, I can come at you with whatever it is that you're willing to accept. You want to talk about moral philosophy, we'll do that. You want to talk about science, by the way, the science is irrefutable. <clears throat> Right? And that's not, that's not an opinion I hold. Yeah. This is an absolute medical fact. I remember I was at the Genocide Awareness Project at uh, Cal State San Marcos uh, years ago. Nathan Apodaca, if you're listening, shout out to you. He, he, he stood by the barricades with me. And a young man came in and we engaged with this guy for quite a while. And when I was done, he looked at me and he said, I want to thank you. you know, he, he thought I guess I was going to yell at him or beat him over the head with a Bible, and I never did. And he said, I want to thank you for sharing your perspective, your opinion. And, and I he started to walk away, and I said, stop, come back. I said, now, I want to make something really clear here. What I just shared with you was not my perspective. What I just shared with you was medical facts. Now, if you have alternative competing medical facts from the one I shared with you, by all means, present them, and then we can argue about them. But do not walk away from here believing I have a perspective and you have a perspective. What I have That's is good. an informed position. Yeah. And what you have is an attitude, right? You've got, I don't mean an attitude, a bad attitude, an attitude. You have an opinion, yeah. an unformed opinion. And we should not equally wait. We, uh, social media has created this democratization of opinion, right? Everybody's got a platform, you get an opinion, right? Democratization opinion, of stupid too, but keep well, going. Well, yeah. Uh, don't, don't get me started. Uh, professor, for 33 years, you would not believe the stuff I've encountered. Uh, <laughs> So I've read undergrad papers, I know. Yes. Um, now, by the way, just to be fair, also some really brilliant students. Sure. So a little bit of both. But uh, we have this idea that everybody's opinion is equal. Yeah. And it's not. Informed opinion is always better than uninformed opinion. And one of the reasons why we debate is to be able to explore uh, people's claims to find out whether or not they have appropriate backing and warrant for the, and data for the claims that they're making. Mm -hmm. If they don't, then we should either get rid of those claims or table them until we have that but in the meantime, we should move forward with what we know to be true. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And then um, just discussion, because I want to push a little bit deeper into tension, because I almost wonder, maybe this is just me, and I'm a sympathetic person uh, to, to, to being nauseous almost. But I think about, I, I don't want to cause anybody pain. I don't want to cause anybody tension. But the reality is, is you don't grow without tension. Um, and we know this to, to be true of ourselves, that very often we don't reconsider what we think unless there's a tension moment in our life that causes us to say, perhaps maybe the direction I've been going, the things I've been thinking, the way that I've been conducting my life is creating this tension, and I cannot get past this tension without change. So tension is the thing that is necessary for change. So, so talk to us about pushing past that tension and just discussion even beyond debate, discussion with family members, discussion with people that disagree with you, discussion with coworkers, discussion just generally speaking in the power that that can have to impact people. Well, the first thing I would say is I don't think we want to allow the default position to remain. Yeah. Right? Because the default position leads people to abort their children. Yeah. 
right? They don't know any better, right? They, they, they don't because nobody's told them. And when I say nobody, I mean their schools haven't told them this. That's right. And I hate to say it, folks, our churches have not told them that. And a part of the reason why I think people are afraid of discussion is they feel ill-equipped. Now, the other side of this issue has spent a lot of time obfuscating this issue by surrounding it with a host of peripheral ideas, which we, I assume we'll get into a little bit later in our podcast. But as I, saw, as, or as I mentioned really uh, at, at the very beginning of this, the issue itself is not a difficult or complex issue. It's a simple issue. Yeah. But once people start feeling like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I'm here in, let's say I'm, I'm in a counseling environment in church and a woman comes in, what am I going to tell her? Or do I even want to talk about this issue? Maybe she's going to come in and tell me how her 15-year-old daughter got pregnant and what should she do? And I don't feel equipped. And there are pastors out there that will tell her, we'll go pray about it. Yeah. Well, folks, I don't have to pray about that anymore than i got to pray about whether or not it'd be okay for me to knock over the bank because I could use some extra money. Yeah. Right? It, or, or, and I do have to, have to throw this in here. Or pastors say, we don't have that problem here. Oh. <laughs> and, and then people are laughing because uh, they, yes. they know that it, that... Um, ignorance is bliss sometimes. That's but. correct. So when we discuss with people, you're right. There's this natural compassion. We don't want to hurt people. And what I would advise you is abortion kills people. Hmm. We forget this sometimes. When you talk about a woman who walks in and she's pregnant, we're not talking about just one person. We're talking about two people. That's right. And abortion won't just inconvenience that other person. It's going to put them to death. And then whether or not that woman ever feels um, any kind of remorse for that abortion or not, the fact remains this child is dead. Frequently, however, as we all know, right, we do have women who feel remorse. Now, there's some people, there are organizations out there like Planned Parenthood has to shout your abortion. The whole idea is to try to normalize it, right, make right. it feel easy, easier to do. By the way, if you've read um, Romans chapter 1, You'll note that it ends with that they not only do it, but they give hearty approval to others. Well, the reason why people give hearty approval to other people who do what they do is to normalize that and make it seem not quite so odd. Abortion is an unbelievably personal thing that happens to people, and it's interesting. I, I believe the enemy comes in and tells people, you're the only one. Mm -hmm. There's nobody else in your circle of friends who's ever done this, so shh, keep yeah. it to yourself, be quiet. And this is how people end up having these issues. So I want to encourage you, if you get an opportunity to talk to people, to discuss it. And, you know, the fact that it is political gives us an incredible opening to talk about it and keep it not personal. Yeah. Right? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, abortion is not primarily a political issue. Abortion is primarily a spiritual issue, secondarily a moral issue, and only on the extreme ends of things, a political issue. It's been yeah. made to be a political issue. Right. But because it is a politi political issue and it comes up every two years when we have national elections, that's a perfect opportunity to talk about it. And you are, if you will do even a modicum of the research necessary, if you read my book, if you read Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life, you will be more than adequately prepared to talk about this issue with anybody because what most people do when they have a discussion about this is they talk in bumper stickers. Yeah. Right? My body, coexist. my choice. Right? What was that? Coexist. Yeah, coexist. My body, my choice. That. Right? You hear people say that. Um, if you don't have a uterus, you don't have an opinion. Right? These are the kinds of bumper sticker statements that people make. At which point, the smart thing to do is to turn around and say, when they say, my body, my choice, say, well, when a woman's pregnant, how many bodies are there? Yeah. And they got to think about it. Well, it's inside the woman's body. Well, does location determine what something is? So if I walk uh, from the 
parking garage in here to the studio, does it change who I am? Well, I've walked, you know, orders of magnitude farther mm-hmm. than a child traverses in a seven-inch birth canal. It doesn't magically transform them into something else. So simple arguments like that. Uh, my body, my choice. Well, once you're pregnant, according to every embryology textbook on the planet, you have a second body inside of your body, so it's no longer your body. And by the way, one of the ways I love to, to reveal this to people is uh, some of you in, this, on the, in the audience here today are old enough to remember this. Some of you are not. Um, uh, this is great, a studio audience. How many of you who, who have been through pregnancy had a tough time and had a little bit of morning sickness here and there? Okay. Now, like everyone. <laughs> everyone, yes. As my wife will tell you, it wasn't morning sickness. It was morning sickness, afternoon sickness, evening sickness. Yeah. Now, if I told you I had a magical drug that you could take every single morning, and if you did that, you wouldn't have any morning sickness. Would you like that? If you could have had that, wouldn't that have been great? Okay. Don't see a lot of heads nodding, but some people are shaking their heads because they know exactly the drug I'm talking about because it exists. It's just that no doctor will give it to you because it's called thalidomide. And what happened is women would take it, and then their children would be born with, with incredible uh, birth defects. So see, doctors understood, well, what do we do? My body, my choice. I don't want to have morning sickness. But the doctor knows there's another body, and that's why you can't have that drug. So uh, this idea of my body, my choice does not extend to what we do with somebody else's body. Mm-hmm. But these are the kinds of arguments in discussion that you run into. Bodily autonomy arguments are real, real big. A woman shouldn't be forced to carry a baby. Well, the fact is she's already got one. If she didn't, we wouldn't be having this discussion, Yeah. right? But she shouldn't be forced to it. You you guys, you've heard this, right? You're just pro-birth, right? (laughs) I keep thinking, what's the alternative, (laughs) right? By the way, here's the thing people say, women should have the right to terminate a pregnancy, and I agree. Every pregnancy I know generally terminates at about 38 to 40 weeks, right? All pregnancies terminate. Pregnancy is not a forever thing. It's, It's just a temporary condition. But people will say, right, women shouldn't be forced to provide support to a child that's not theirs. And they'll use some uh, version of Judith uh, Jarvis Thompson's uh, violinist, right? Some of you have heard the violinist approach. The idea is that there are a bunch of music lovers, and there's this violinist, and he's got this, um, this difficult disease that is going to require the filtering of a very specific person's kidneys. So they go out and they kidnap that person, and they hook him up to the violinist, and suddenly the violinist wakes up, and the guy says, look, it's too late. I've already got you hooked up to this guy. If we unhook him, uh, he's going to die. Now, is that guy obligated to lie on that table and provide support to that guy, or should he be allowed to unhook himself and get on with his life? Well, there are a lot of problems with this scenario, right? So let me me give you just a couple of them. And by the way, there are more um, sophisticated examples of this particular uh, scenario, but this is the one most people are going to give you. First thing is, hey, you don't just unplug people. Now, imagine the same scenario, but in order to get free of the violinist, you had to come up with a chainsaw and carve him into pieces. It changes the scenario, doesn't it? It doesn't look quite so clinical and antiseptic. Secondly, the violinist is a stranger. The child in your body is your child. And in the vast majority of circumstances, you've engaged in behavior voluntarily that brought that child into being. The child's not a stranger to you. It's it's literally a part of you, and parents have obligations toward their children. If you don't think so, talk to some woman who's dealing with a deadbeat dad, right? People have obligations toward their children. And these are just a couple of the arguments that you yeah. can make. But, so people throw these things out in discussion as what they think of as conversation stoppers, right? They don't think you're going to have an answer. 
And what yeah. I'm telling you is have an answer. Yeah. But the bottom line, it always comes down to this, which is if it's never okay to intentionally kill an innocent human being and abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, it's just wrong. And that should be simple enough. Yeah. Easy right. to prove. So let's do rapid fire because we're getting down okay. to our time here. Um, and rapid fire because I think sometimes in discussion, uh, brevity is important. Um, I'm and a I, speech professor, man. This yeah. is an <laughs> occupational hazard. Well, I, I, um, I, I think, and I think too, we need to be able to show people that we, we can effectively answer their questions when they have those questions. All right. So. Um, obviously, it may take a minute or two to answer these, so it doesn't have to be entirely rapid fire. I feel like but a presidential debate. Rapid fire <laughs> in terms of, um, okay, plan, let's just start with Planned Parenthood because I know that's near and dear to some of the people's hearts that are here because Planned Parenthood is attempting to move back into Chattanooga mm -hmm. or to move into Chattanooga and start a clinic here. Um, I actually don't know where we're at in, in terms of the timeline for that, but, um, but I know that there's a lot of people here that are in the know about what's going on and uh, without anything stopping them, there's going to be a, plan, uh, a Planned Parenthood here in Chattanooga in the next couple of months. And already is. They've already started hiring people and all that kind of stuff. So um, Planned Parenthood, they're just there to try to help people plan their families. And abortion is only 3% of what they do. Why did I know this was coming? <laughs> I just have to read this response. In the latest PDF on their site, the pregnant women... Uh, they, to whom they, uh, this is what they offered pregnant women. Um, they offered prenatal services to 8,626. Keep in mind that they count services as every interaction. So it, it, that would equal a service. So that they could have um, given prenatal vitamins once a month over six months to 1,428 women, and that would count as 8,626 8, services, all right, instances of prenatal care. They also offered adoption referrals to 2,667 women. Note that their own document says adoption referrals to other agencies, so they aren't really facilitating adoptions, right? All they're really doing is pushing them off to somebody else. Then they performed 354,871 abortions. Each one of those procedures ended the life of a human fetus in the womb, every single one of them. So if you add up all prenatal services and generously suggest that each service represents a unique client, that would be very generous, and add in adoption referrals, which isn't much of a service, and then add in the abortions, you will find that for pregnant women, Planned Parenthood provided 366,166 uh, 6, services, 354,871 of which, or 97%, were abortions. When it comes to pregnant women, Planned Parenthood is in the abortion business. Now, not only is that true, but how many times have you heard Planned Parenthood say, or any other, uh, any other uh, abortion choice advocate say, uh, you know what, if you don't have a uterus, you don't get an opinion. Isn't it interesting that up in Knoxville, where I live, they've got a brand new initiative coming out. Their board got a $500,000 lead gift. They got a $550,000 donation just from their board, and now they're going out to the community for an extra $250,000. Do you know half of their board are men? Hmm. Half of them. So why is it that when it's their men, they don't mind bringing their men on board, but they want to tell your men to sit on the sidelines and shut up? I'm here to tell you, gentlemen in my audience, you aren't here accompanying your wife to a pro-life thing she really wanted to go to. If you're watching this podcast and you're a man, I don't want you to think that you're off the hook. Yeah. This is your battle, 
and you need to step in and become active because we should not be fighting with one arm tied behind our back. And frankly, our women are tired of carrying the burden entirely on their own. So we need to step up. We need to work together and get the job done to make abortion unthinkable in America as soon as ever may be. And that'll happen a whole lot faster if men will jump on board with us. I was about to say, far too many women in this audience to not get a response like that. So <laughs> you can even elbow your husband if you want to. Um, Be my guest. Uh, all right. So, uh, of course, if we get political and we start taking necessary action to make the evil of abortion, because it is murder, illegal in the United States, well, of course... Uh, what you're going to do is you're going to increase the rate of back alley abortions. Women are going to go grab coat hangers, and because they just cannot stand being pregnant, will do whatever they can to make sure that they have to have an abortion because women crave abortions, according to pro-choice advocates. Um, speak to that, and then also include Narrell's lie, because I think that really shows the dishonest nature of discourse on this issue. Okay, Bernard Nathanson wrote a book called Aborting America, and he's written a number of other books, and you'll actually find the statistic in a bunch of places. He was one of the founding members of NARAL, the National uh, Abortion Rights Action League. And he said when they, when they came up, you've heard the, the phrase, right? 10,000 women a year were dying from back alley abortions. He said, we literally pulled that statistic out of thin air. Yeah. It was a nice, round, shocking figure. And this and is they, before Roe v. Wade. Yes, and they knew it wasn't true. Yeah. Now, let me clarify something. One woman's death from abortion of any kind, legal or illegal, is one too many. I don't want to see any women die from abortion at all. That being said, when they called them back alley abortions, the reason they called them back alley abortions was because they were being performed by licensed physicians. It's just that the women came in through the back alley. It is such an incredibly insulting idea to women to believe that they would, and this is the imagery, right, that they would go up in an attic somewhere and meet with some old crone with a rusty coat hanger. The fact that they use a coat hanger as their symbol is the most, ins it's the most insulting thing I can imagine, that women do not have the mental capacity right, to get past the lie. And yet they have been very successful using this rhetorical device. We need to let them know it's just simply not true. Nowhere near that many women ever uh, died from abortion. And by the way, early, uh, when those numbers might have been a little bit higher, one of the reasons why women died from illegal abortions was because there weren't any antibiotics. But once we introduced antibiotics, the number of deaths from any kind of infection went down dramatically. And by the way, there are women who still die today from legal abortion, even though I want to clarify, because I, I, I don't want anybody to look at this later and say, oh, see, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Abortion is a very safe procedure for the woman having it. It is virtually 100% lethal. There are some people who survive an abortion attempt, yeah. but it's virtually 100% lethal for every child on which it's performed. Violently lethal. All right, and I think... Quite frankly, uh, well, before I get there, I, when I'm, we got to do this one because this is super important. Life begins, and you kind of talked about this, you did talk about this, but I think we need to dig into it. Life begins at conception. Yeah, you're correct. <laughs> I think we're done. Yeah, life begins at conception. Every embryologist on the planet knows that life begins at conception. Planned Parenthood knows, or at least they used to know, that life begins at conception. I've got a booklet. You can come to my webpage and you can actually get photocopies off that booklet. You can have them and just pull them out and say, this is what Planned Parenthood taught in 1951. And here's my response. Show me what has changed in medical, in medical knowledge, ultrasonography, yeah. 
How do we, what has changed to make us believe that this is no longer true? And I can only come down to this. Planned Parenthood changed its mind on this because of money and political power. That's why they made, because it certainly was not based in science. Isn't it funny? They always go, follow the science, except here, <laughs> right? Let's put the blinders on and not see the science yeah. there. Uh, the science is abundantly clear. There is no doubt. Matter of fact, when you, if you ever engage in this debate with a real um, abortion choice advocate, by the way, can we challenge Reed to stop using the term pro-choice? I know why you have to do it, but nevertheless, uh, we don't want to buy in. We don't want to buy into the toolbox of our opponents. So they're abortion choice advocates because that's what they do. They advocate for the choice of abortion. I didn't call them pro-aborts, right? I'm being fair. I always want them to call me a fetal rights advocate, but I can't get them to do it. Um, <laughs> but you know what? I'll take anti-abortion because there's some things that's good to be anti, right? I'm anti-slavery. I'm anti-child trafficking. I'm anti-rape. There's a lot of good things to be anti, yeah. right? So it's just, it's, it, it's not even up for debate. Even our opponents will come right out and say, human life begins at conception. What they will say, though, is, so we, they don't want to talk about that. So the second part of the issue that they deal with is, okay, they're human beings, but they're not persons. Yeah. Okay. The problem is, and I don't know if we got time to, and, and I know that Seth handled the whole sled argument, but um, sled argument is the argument that all of the, disagree, uh, the disagreements that we have about when personhood begins falls into four categories, size, um, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. How big you are, how developed you are, you have the right number of attributes to be deemed a human person, right. um, your environment, where you're located, and your degree of dependency, they argue that you have to be independent of somebody else in order to be a person. Um, all of these fail because, right, uh, size is no, I mean, we don't determine who has more or less human life or value based on their size. If that was true, most of the men in this room would have more value than most of the women in this room, right? And that's simply not true. Um, secondly, the idea that uh, level of uh, development matters, we aren't all equally developed. If you are a young man in the room today and you're under the age of 25, your two hemispheres of your brain haven't even zipped together yet, okay? Which might <laughs> explain true. some certain behaviors that people have. Um, if you're an eight-year-old girl, your, uh, your um, reproductive organ systems are, are not fully developed yet. That doesn't make you less of a human being. As a matter of fact, I find it intriguing. It is the people, right, who are less developed that historically uh, in the Western culture, we have afforded greater protections. Right, because they aren't strong enough, for example, to defend themselves. Right. Environment, we already dealt with that, right? Distance, where you're located, doesn't determine what you are. And then degree of dependency, same thing. Folks, in every other area of life, it's the people who are the weakest and most dependent that the law comes alongside and actually helps, unless you're in the womb. Right? We have uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. That's right. People who are in incredibly dependent. My mother-in-law lived with us for the last two years of her life, literally could not do anything. She was in a bed. She needed help, help, nothing. She needed someone to do the toileting for her, feed her, hydrate her, um, everything, turn her, everything she needed to be done for two years. She had Alzheimer's. My uh, sister-in-law wrote a great book about it called Bringing Mom Home. She never ceased to be Jenny. Even in her delusional talk, she never ceased to be Jenny. She was still that human being. She still had incredible value and worth because she is created in the image of God. Yeah. We still sang to her, spoke to her. Um, she could still remember certain aspects of long ago parts of her life. And, and we would talk about those things. She would have rather intriguing hallucinations, which were sometimes humorous. You got to find some humor in some of these things. She saw babies all over the room, which I thought was fascinating. So you'd come to sit down in the chair. She'd go, don't sit on the baby. I'd go, oh, oops. We good. So uh, we don't determine uh, people's value on the basis of, of those things. 
Christopher Kayser, in his book, The Ethics of Abortion, says that every single time in human history, we have created a dividing line to identify a group of human persons and a group of human non-persons. We have created a moral catastrophe. So you look at slavery in in the U.S. South. You look at what happened to the Jews during uh, the Third Reich. What did they do? They said, okay, they're human beings, but they're not persons. And every single time, you know what we did with them? We dehumanized them, then we abused them, and then we felt free to kill them. Why in the world do we think suddenly we got it right this time? Right? 100% of the time, we've gotten it wrong. Why would we think we have it right now? And the bottom line is this. The reason why people abort children is the same reason why people held slaves, the same reason why people eliminated Jews. I'm going to say something really controversial here. It's because the reason we abort people is because they're either getting in the way of something that we want or they're a resource that has value for us where they're more valuable dead than they were alive. And that would get us into a huge discussion of embryonic stem cell research we don't have time for today. But... In other words, people see value in them being dead. So nothing's changed. It's the exact same uh, philosophical and ethical underpinnings that has always been in, in place whenever one group of human beings have determined, right, powerful groups of human beings, have determined that powerless human beings need to serve their purposes and not have value independently on their own. Yeah, absolutely. I, don't, I have too much faith in the left's ability to propagandize that I don't think this will happen, but hypothetically it should that we will look back hopefully in the future and say abortion was one of the grossest travesties how in the world did we ever let that happen it will absolutely happen if if the lord tarries i guarantee you it will happen we will look back on this era of human history and we will be appalled at the pile of bodies that we have let let mount under our watch yeah and not come to the defense of the weak and defenseless Okay, last question. All right, because I know, uh, and I wanted to ask about the uh, conception question and bring that kind of back to the fore so that we can ask this question because even people who would agree that's a life in your womb might say this. Okay, if that's a life in your womb, but it was implanted there by a rapist, then that woman has no obligation to keep that rapist's baby. So obviously we can understand the compassion that goes into a question like that. Somebody just uh, was raped and uh, against their will. And one of the worst things, uh, hopefully, that will ever happen to them in their life, and unfortunately did. Well, a couple of responses. The first thing was it, whenever anybody talks with you about a rape, uh, the first thing that comes out of your mouth should never be an argument. The yeah. first thing that should come out of your mouth should always be compassion. Now, I'm going to look at this in, from two perspectives. One is it's somebody that you know who talks with you about this. And I would say, you know, if you've been raped, if you know anybody who's been raped, I believe that if somebody is guilty of rape, if he's been, been caught, if he has been tried, convicted, he should be sentenced to the full extent of the law. Whatever the law will allow for punishment, that person should get it. It's an unbelievable violation of somebody's honest body, bodily autonomy, right? It's horrifying. And all sympathy should go to the woman who should get all of the support that she needs to find a way through this experience, okay? Now I'm going to tell you the the flip side of that. In a debate, in a public arena, somebody will get up and ask that question. They almost are never asking it from the position of, uh, of what do you do about rape? What they're trying to do is to get you to say that you are not in favor of abortion in the, in the, uh, as a result of rape, and that will paint you as an unsympathetic person who hates women. Or you will say 
no, I would not do anything about that. I would let the woman have an abortion, in which case you're inconsistent. Um, for those of you who are Star Trek nerds, this is the Kobayashi Maru syndrome here, right? It's a not, non-winnable uh, response. So what you have to do is you have to get to the underlying rationale for the question in the first place. So the first thing that I will do is, you know, I'll, I'll act with compassion, and then I'll ask, if I can provide you with an appropriate philosophical and legal response to this issue, would you abandon your opposition to abortion and join me in trying to make it unthinkable and illegal? And I'm going to tell you right now, nine times out of ten, they'll tell you no. At which point I will respond, as, as, uh, as Ben Shapiro did at one of his debates, I will respond and say, how dare you use one of the most tragic experiences in a woman's life in order to score some cheap political points? Shame on you. Now, let's turn to the actual issue. Is it okay to have an abortion because a woman has experienced a rape? The first thing I would say is the one thing we already know is that what's in her body right now is not her body. It's somebody else's body. So I say, okay, a rape has occurred. There are now three people involved. A woman, right? A child, right? And the rapist. So now we're going to, head, we're going to go ahead and we're going to sign guilt, okay? So um, the woman, innocent or guilty? Innocent. innocent. The rapist, innocent or guilty? Guilty. guilty. Okay. The unborn child, innocent or guilty? Innocent. innocent. Now, why is it almost nowhere in the United States, I don't think anywhere in the United States still has capital punishment for rape. Why, why is the innocent the only one that's going to get capital punishment? The one person who absolutely doesn't deserve it. Now, there are options available to women who have become impregnated as a result of rape. By the way, um, the vast majority, the, I, I've known of many people who have been the products of a rape experience. Now, they're never going to say to you, yes, I'm the child of a rapist. That's not how they identify themselves. Hmm. But they're very glad for the life that they have. And I've known women who've given birth after a rape. And I've never met a single one who's told me that they've regretted it. Now, sometimes, in fact, more frequently than you might imagine, the woman still chooses to parent that child. Do you want to know why? Because half of that child's DNA is hers. It's her baby. And there's also the option of placing that child for adoption, right? That's also a possibility. So um, when we talk about rape, and then, then people will say, well, she's been forced or she's been, uh, uh, she's been you know, coerced, um, I run out some scenarios. One of them is, uh, so much for your one-minute response. Um, <laughs> one of the scenarios is, imagine that a man is in a bar and he meets with, meets with a woman in a bar and, uh, and without him knowing it, she slips a roofie or something like that in his drink and then she and an accomplice haul him up to uh, a room and then she's wa she wanted to have a baby so um, they, she forcibly has sex. Well, he wakes up, he's tied down to the bed and she manages to uh, complete an act with him and then, uh, then she takes off. Fortunately, some security cameras got a picture of her, and about four months later, they track her down, and sure enough, she's pregnant. Does he have the right to force her to abort that child? No. no. Well, you, I guarantee if you talk, ask around, people will tell you no, and that lets you know that force is not the ultimate issue. Right. Right? So it's something else. It could be power, but it's not force. So these are some of the kind of scenarios that we need to deal with. So the, the bottom line is this, compassion for victims of rape and incest. That being said, if we're going to be compassionate toward the woman who's experienced rape or incest, we must especially be compassionate 
toward the child who literally can do nothing to defend themselves. They don't get a choice at all. Yeah. So we have to provide, uh, and, and in that process, we should provide the woman who's been a victim of rape or incest with all of the support she could possibly need. We should provide it so that we can safeguard the life of that child and help her to walk her way through recovery. Finally, you know what? Abortion never unrapes a woman, ever. It, but people have this idea, if I just abort the child, I'm not going to be able to, I, I won't be, uh, be burdened by having to see this baby that looks like my rapist. And a scenario that I've put out before is, what if a woman is married to a guy and she's happily married to him for five years, she's got a couple of kids, both the spitting image of their dad. And then six years in, she finds out that her husband gets hauled in by the police and she discovers that for the last five years, this guy has been a serial, violent rapist. He was just great at home. She gets on the stage, she goes to the trial, woman after woman after woman gets up, identifies him absolutely as the guy and, and describes in lurid detail their violent rapes. And he's convicted and thrown away for the next 40 years. She comes home. She looks at those kids, spitting image of her dad. Does she have the right to put those kids to death? Now, people look at you and go, what are you, a monster? Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. But if you can't kill them now, why could you kill them then? If we've already demonstrated the moral equivalency of the child in the womb and the child outside of the womb, why can we kill them then now, but, but not now? And it's just a morally inconsistent position. I think what we really have to do is challenge the people that we talk to to be morally consistent. Mm -hmm. And we have a tremendous capacity to hold within our minds contradictory ideas. Yeah. And it takes discussion, and it takes debate. By the way, it also takes the clarity of preaching from a godly pulpit yeah. amongst church folk to help people find their way through all of these contradictions that they hold uh, in tension because nobody ever brings them up. And so the, as long as people can live comfortably with the contradiction, they will. So our job in discussion, our job in debate, our job from the pulpit is to introduce a certain amount of tension to free people up, to uh, shepherd them to a better decision. Yeah, and I think, uh, too, it's, it's worth noting that I don't think we should cede the ground. So you did a fantastic job of talking about that. I don't think we should cede the ground of in the case of uh, incest and rape. But um, also, too, for the sake of honesty, we should you know hold people's feet to the fire and push back a little bit and just say, um, I, I don't remember, but I've heard it millions of different times, maybe heard originally from Ben Shapiro too, just the idea that like, okay, if I say just for rape and incest, then are you willing to say no other abortions, period? Yeah. And then most people, you know, are, are not going to say yeah. okay, because the reality is, is the vast majority of abortions that happen in the United States uh, and other places in the world, I would assume, yeah. uh, are not because of rape and incest. No, they're elective. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Okay, so the very last thing, because I promised we would get to this, and I think this is so important because this happens in a myriad of different conversations. I see it all the time because I believe in the power of conversation. Um, and it can be frustrating to have conversations with people because they don't, um, they don't want to retreat from their corner. They don't really want to be honest. I mean, atheists still exist for crying out loud, and there's lots of evidence for God's existence. Um, so, um, when you have given irrefutable evidence to the person, and I, you even write this in your book, that uh, you've had these kind of conversations where they have no more arguments, you've answered every one of their arguments, given them irrefutable evidence to reconsider their position, and they still don't reconsider their position, why should we engage in conversation when this so happens so often that people just want to retreat to their ideological corner and they don't actually want to have an honest dialogue? Okay, it 
a lot depends on the context. So, for example, let's say you're on social media and you're having this conversation. Uh-huh. You have to be aware that there are a lot of people who are lurkers who are just watching the conversation unfold. And if you can provide evidence, if you can maintain a winsome witness toward that person, not get involved in name calling. By the way, they will call you every name in the book. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. Don't engage at that level. That's just ad hominem stuff. I let that go. Let's just address the issues. You are no longer engaging to try to win that person. You are engaging to win the people you can't even see. When I talk about debate, I remember I had a, a pastor when I was at UC Irvine. I was a professor there, and I ran the speech and debate program, and we had a debate. Carol Sobel was there from the ACLU debating a local pastor who I think she thought she was going to beat. And he got up, and he basically asked her in cross-examination, if I can prove to you that human life begins at conception, therefore should be protected in law, would, if I can prove it to you, would you change your mind? And she said, no, because the life of the women uh, rates higher than the life of that unborn child. And by the way, this is a very common deal. They conflate a term. Be careful when people use the word life. Because what they mean, for example, the article that I cited earlier from the woman who said it was a life worth sacrificing, what they do is they conflate the term life. They, they, provide, they engage in what's called the fallacy of equivocation. They have two words. They have a word, but it means two different things, but they treat it the same way in the sentence. So uh, the woman says, uh, it's going to hurt my life. Well, what she means is my lifestyle, what I'm going to be able to do with my life. And then they talk about the life of the child, which means the actual physical life of that child. That child's going to die. The woman's not going to die if she has the baby. It's just maybe some of her priorities may change. Mm-hmm. Okay? But people will, uh, will make claims like this. We have to make certain that when we talk about this issue, we're abundantly clear with folks so that we don't let them get away. But even after that, even if you have people like this who say, I agree it's a life, it's a life we're sacrificing. Uh, you're all familiar with the standard deviation curve, right? I would argue that in any, um, in any culture, in, in the Western culture, about 20% of people you're going to meet are going to be pro-life, and they're going to be pro-life no matter what, even if they can't even articulate the arguments for why they're pro-life. They're just a pro-life because their pastor told them to be or their family is. And and if you put a gun to their head, they could not make a case to save them. On the other side is probably 20% of people who are so committed to the act of abortion that it wouldn't matter whatever evidence you provided. It simply would not matter. They want to be able to abort children. And this is where I draw, draw the line between an abortion choice supporter. These are people who just really don't know the arguments that well, but they think that that's what the cool kids think or that's what their tribe thinks. And then I separate them from this 20%, and they are the abortion choice advocate. No matter what, they're going to advocate for it. Those people need to be defeated. But in the process of defeating them, it's still okay to have conversations with them in public forums for lurkers, for people who are watching, for the audience. By the way, I've never in my life in an academic debate had an opponent stand up in the middle of it and go, gosh, Mark, I had no idea why... I don't know why I didn't think of that. You're right. I'll concede right. Never, ever, ever. Not one time had it happen. But I have talked with people who have been in this camp that you're discussing who over time slowly changed their mind. And the next thing you know, you don't even know what it was that did it. But the next thing you know, they're talking like a pro-lifer. And what's really fun is when they're giving you your arguments back to you as if they're they're yours. (laughs) And that's a moment when I, even as a college professor, I don't mind a little plagiarism. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and, and I do have to be a little tongue in cheek and just say, um, I'm glad you said that, especially that last part, because I think even if there are no lurkers, the person you're speaking with, even if they resist what you have to say, you've had, if you've had a conversation with your wife or your husband, you understand this, that you may absolutely go at each other and you may not agree. But at the end of the day, 
a, a conscientious person may go back to the room and start thinking about the things that were just said and may consider even though they didn't seem to consider. So even if it doesn't seem like that person is being won over by arguments or even listening to what you have to say, there is merit in the conversation and it needs to be had because babies need to be protected. Even in the, in the heat of discussion, most people will not concede. Um, by the way, you talked about husbands and wives. Uh, in our family, we have a rule, which if you assert something very uh, adamantly, mm -hmm. and it is demonstrated that you are wrong. We publicly, and I have said these words, believe me, you are right and I am wrong. You were correct while I was mistaken. Did you hear that, By honey? the way, that's something, and ladies too, we all need to learn how to be able to say that. And one last thing, a lot of us get nervous about engaging in, in the pro-life uh, discussion, and you don't need to be. Literally, read a short book, like my book or, or like Scott Klusendorf's book, and it will prepare you to do this. But the most important thing is, there just aren't enough advocates. And I, I, can I circle back just briefly to something you sure. said earlier? He talked about, well, what about the people who say, why aren't you taking care of immigration or all these other issues? Folks, there are a million organizations that take care of all those other issues. Do you want to know how many people stand in the gap for the lives of unborn children? Very small. There are the few pro-life advocates that are out there and, and pregnancy help organizations. And when people come at you and say, no, you need to be doing all of this other stuff, you want to know what they're really doing? They're diluting your resources. And they're making you not as effective as you need to be. Pregnancy help organizations, I know that a lot of them give out diapers. I would rather see social services organizations or churches hand out diapers so that we can focus on the one thing we're best at, meeting with abortion-minded, abortion-vulnerable women and helping them to choose life for their unborn child. That's what we should be focusing on. So I don't allow for anything that's going to dilute the, um, the, the, the key element of our strategic goals. We've got to stay focused on abortion as the issue. And you know what? When we stop killing innocent human beings, then we can start looking at, at, at other issues. And believe me, there's already plenty of other people looking at those issues. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Thank All right. All right, so I promised a little Q&A, and um, we've cut in a little bit to your time, so um, I hope you guys, ju that just gave you a little bit more time to figure out what you want to ask. So if you have a question, go ahead and please line up on this, uh, at this podium right here in front of the microphone, and if you guys will just go ahead and form a single file line. We want to try to get to as many people with as many questions as possible. Um, I know you've got to have questions. Uh, if you have a question, maybe even, that is a little bit pushing back on anything that we said here today, we want to hear from you. And uh, we want to be able to school you right now. So ring the bell, school's in session. I'm just kidding about that last part. But sin sincerely, if you, if you want a little bit of pushback, I think this is important because the reality is, is when you have these conversations in the real world, you're going to get pushback. So, um, so whatever your question may be, we, we'd love to hear it from you. So, um, so you guys can go ahead and make your way to the microphone. We've got our first question already. Um, so go ahead and uh, ask your question. Uh, thank you, and thank you guys for a great program tonight. And we started out the evening talking about the importance of, uh, of discussion and debate. And then the specific topic you all were talking about is the right to life issue, did a great job of it. And Mark, I think you did an excellent job uh, in, in your point that abortion is just like the human sacrifice of the ancient churches. Mm -hmm. And I would go a step further. I don't hesitate to look at Planned Parenthood as being a collection of churches, and I would call them that. Or the ACLU as being a collection of churches. Or NARAL as being a collection of churches. So it's basically our beliefs versus their beliefs. And in fact, I would, I would say that the only difference between my church and the Planned Parenthood churches are our beliefs. 
but as important as the, as the uh, right to life issue is, and it's, 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 there's a lot of issues, and I would rank it number one, but I think there's something even more important about tonight, and that is the importance of having the debate in the first place, having the conversation in the first place. The biggest difference between the pro-life churches and the Planned Parenthood and ACLU is that we want to have the discussion, we want to have the debate, they don't want to have discussion, they don't want to have debate. In fact, they want to go a step further and stifle or cancel all debate. So I'd like your comments on that. Okay. To begin with, um, you're, you're correct. Uh, frequently, Planned Parenthood won't even show up if they know they're going to face opposition. They just won't do it. Which, by the way, is a great reason why you should go ahead and slate those debates on area high school and college campuses. Good point. Because they won't show up, and that gives your pro-life speaker double the time if, if you've got the person who's putting it on, if, they are an, 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 if they're a moral person. Because if I've agreed to show up and my opponent agrees, uh, chooses at the last minute to bow out, I shouldn't be punished for that. You should still let me go, and, and I'll be happy to talk with, with all of the students and do back and forth with them, even the ones who don't share my perspective. You know, we can have a debate without having the other side there if they don't want to show up. Now, for the longest time, we would be able to get, as I put on a, a number of abortion debates in my career, um, we've had people from women's studies programs come up in debate. We've had people from, uh, from the ACLU come up in debate. Uh, so you can sometimes find debaters, but you're right, they don't. And as a matter of fact, if you look in some of their web pages, this, by the way, is a very common uh, trope among the left, which is to simply say, uh, it's, it, it's not debatable. Well, I got news for you. Everything's debatable. I know this because I was a debate coach for 20 years. Everything is debatable. The question is, can you defend your position? And I'd be happy uh, to have a chat with anybody who wants to have that discussion with me. And I know a lot of other debaters who'd be more than happy to come out as well. So we want to get debates on college and high school campuses. Um, my friend Scott Klusendorf works with an organization called Summit. If you want to send your kids to a place where they'll get good worldview training, that's a great place to go. Uh, but we're more than happy to come out onto campuses and engage in debates with anybody who's willing to debate us. But they don't want to debate because you've got to remember, they own the high ground right now. They only have something to lose, right? Um, I, have, I got invited, uh, this is many years ago, I got invited to debate at uh, California State University San Marcos, and I wish I would have saved this tape, I swear I wish I would have saved this, I didn't. Um, and anyway, somebody contacted me and asked me, I was teaching at the time at Palomar College, which is a community college, and I think they thought they were going to get that community college professor out to the big bad uh, Cal State University campus, and then they were going to make mincemeat of me, and somehow they became aware of the fact <laughs> Uh, that I had coached at UC Irvine for four years, uh, that I was training pro-life public speakers all across the United States, that uh, yeah, I'd been a professor for, for many, many years, and, and, uh, and I suddenly got a, a you know, beep on my phone saying that they had disinvited me. And they said that they decided that they did not want to provide a platform for the anti-choice voice on their campus. Now, the fun little side note is then, many years later, I end up at the Genocide Awareness Project on their campus, and now I get to directly engage with their students, who, by the way, had been peppered with all kinds of questions to ask us, I could tell by professors uh, who had never, ever studied it. The one thing I will tell you is this. Everybody who, that I know who's a pro-life apologist, they've read these books. They've read A Defense of Abortion by David Boonin. 
They've read Robin Marty's book, uh, A Handbook for Post-Roe America. By the way, if you don't think our opponents have tried to figure out how they're going to respond when Roe versus Wade is overturned, you ought to have a look at this book. It's very detailed. And then a terrible book uh, by Katha Pollitt, which is hardly worth mentioning, except for a lot of people, I guess, really liked it. Um, but the arguing in it is just, it's beneath contempt from anybody who understands how to make an argument. Um, but we have opponents, and they write books, but they never read our books. With the exception, I got a props to David Boonin. David Boonin actually uh, read Christopher Kayser's book, uh, The Ethics of Abortion, which, by the way, is a point-by-point -point refutation of his work and was honest enough to provide a blurb on the back of it saying that what he had written was an important work and that anyone interested in this issue should study it. Mm -hmm. So props to David Boonin. He's a real philosopher, and he, uh, he did the right thing. But a lot of other people, you, we know when you step up in front of a microphone, your opponent has never read anything on your side of the issue. They've just been propagandized for years. Yeah. Go ahead. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your talk and, and for your work. It's been great. Um, want to know how you address the effect of oral contraception and intrauterine devices and its impact on, on babies. Okay. My, first, and my first short answer is, generally, I don't. And I'll tell you why. When I'm on a college campus, students are looking for a reason to not listen to me. And if I come out of the gate and say, and by the way, not only am I pro-life, but none of you people should be having sex either, right? That's a really quick way for them to go, oh, Puritan Neanderthal patriarch, right? Not going to listen to you. So I don't generally get into those issues. I try to keep the focus directly on abortion. Now, if we're talking about distinctions between abortifacient contraception and contraception, which is not inherently abortifacient, we can have that discussion. And there is some... Um, controversy over how some of those um, things operate. For example, um, uh, copper IUDs, they initially operate as a means of, uh, as a spermicide effectively, and it just keeps contraception from happening, inside, period. Okay, but it has a secondary um, effect of making the uterine lining inhospitable. Okay, so me personally, would I advocate for a, a woman to have an IUD? I would not recommend it. Of course, what I recommend is that you have chastity until marriage and faithfulness inside of marriage. By the way, I don't like the, I love the word chaste. Nobody uses it anymore, right? They talk about pu <laughs> purity or abstinence means that's something you're not supposed to do. No, be chaste. I've never ever once in my life met a woman who didn't like to be chaste. If you say chaste around my uh, youngest child, you're going to get a police dog in mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's great. Okay, go ahead. Uh, so my question uh, kind of dovetails into his, but again, thank you guys for speaking on this. So you kind of made a couple points. One, right, the third point is political, right? First, whether or not it's something that we should uphold as a moral issue. And then third was the political sphere. So I don't want to be political, right, because we all know, believe people who uh, love and believe in Jesus, who fall on all sides of the spectrum, mm -hmm. right? The other thing that you kind of talked about was that standard deviation, mm -hmm. right? You kind of mentioned, hey, the 20% that are pro-abortion advocates, we're never going to convert them, right. right? But the other 60% that are in the middle kind of waver back and forth. And so for me, I, I especially in the last couple of years, have felt this angst about how do I reconcile the fact that I'm a pro-lifer, and so I vote for people who say abortion is wrong, we need to eradicate it. Mm -hmm. 
how do I engage with people who, they're not pro-abortion, but they vote for people who are pro-choice. And the reasoning behind that is because, oh, well, statistically, if you look at George W. Bush, the number of abortions barely went down during the eight years that he was in presidency. But then you look at Obama and the eight years that he was in president, oh, because of all the additional resources, right, contraception, all these other things that were given, well, the, the abortions went down. I mean, ultimately, everybody agrees that, well, maybe not everybody, but I would say most people in this room say abortion is wrong, and they're not going to advocate for that. But how do we engage with the people who say, no, I agree with you, but I'm still going to vote for the people that are going to provide for the resources and therefore decrease the amount of abortions because getting rid of abortion is just not plausible. Yeah. Um, I will bet you that there were lots of slave owners in the South who believed that getting rid of slavery wasn't plausible either, and yet here we are. So let me kind of circle back and let's start with the, what I would call the mushy middle, the 60% of people who are in the mushy middle. They are the objects of persuasion because they are the ones who can tip the scales politically, right? And most people do not know anything about this issue. I know this because I did a survey of about 1,000 college students. It was a longitudinal study over many years, and I asked them a bunch of different questions about abortion. None of them thought they were taking a survey on abortion. They thought they were taking a survey on uh, whether or not faculty members should be allowed to um, censor the speech topics that they speak about in class. So I knew that there were two topics that faculty members didn't want people to speak about. Uh, legalization of marijuana was one of them, they were tired of it, and abortion was the other one. Well, why didn't they want people to speak about abortion? Well, it's overdone, people have already made up their mind, etc. So I thought, well, if, if it's overdone, then these students must know a lot about abortion. So I, I, I schooled, I, I quizzed them and asked them. And what I found, of course, is they knew absolutely nothing about abortion. But the most chilling part was when I asked them, if a woman came to you with an, uh, with an unintended pregnancy, to what local organization would you refer her? Every single one of the institutions had a uh, pregnancy resource center nearby. I'm going to get these stats maybe a little off, but it'll be pretty close. Um, at the state universities where I did this survey, 57% of the students wrote in Planned Parenthood. Didn't bubble it in. It was an open-ended question. Um, and then, so 57% said that, and then 37% said, I don't know. 95% of students didn't know or would send it to Planned Parenthood. I repeated this at a um, evangelical Christian university, asked the same question, where would you refer her? Number one answer, I think at 52% was, I don't know, even though they had seven fully licensed pregnancy help organizations nearby, okay? Number two answer at 43% was Planned Parenthood, right? So our people, they don't know. So the first thing I wanna, I wanna establish is there is gross ignorance in this country. When people tell you that they've heard about it and they, they've made up their mind, it's simply not true. Our pulpits are silent and our schools won't talk about it. And if we don't talk about it, who's going to defend the unborn? The answer yeah. is nobody. So we talk about politically. People come in and they say, well, um, I am personally pro-life but politically pro-choice. Nobody ever would use that kind of rationale for any other issue, right? Because if you're personally pro-life, I would ask, why are you pro-life? Ask them, why are you pro-life? And if the answer is anything other than, because what's in a woman's body from the moment of conception is a, is a whole, separate, distinct, living human being, and it's morally wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, then they're not pro-life for good reasons. Yeah. And if they do understand that reason, then I would say, why in the world would you vote for a candidate whose official party platform right. is not only the death of that child, but promoting more of the death of that child. Yeah. Now, people come at you with those statistics. 
Okay, there is a uh, there is a tactic in debate called alternative causality, right? It's also a logical uh, um, response. People will say, oh, they gave all these resources to Planned Parenthood. Not at all. Let me tell you something else I know. When I first started working in this field, there were about 2,500 uh, abortion facilities and about 700 pregnancy resource centers. Now, we are crowding 3,000 pregnancy resource centers, and the number of abortion facilities have gone down to 700. So that's one reason. Number two, take a look at the research that's come out. Um, the kids in this generation are scared to death of sex. They don't want to have sex. We have a lower rate of teen uh, sexual activity. Uh, if you are a boomer, these kids are not interested remotely to the level that you were when you were a boomer. Because what have they had to live through? AIDS, super strains of syphilis and gonorrhea, more and more instance uh, or evidence about the, the humanity of the unborn because they've all seen sonogram pictures of their siblings, right? And all of these things are things that contribute toward a decrease in abortion. I'm telling you right now, if you read Robin Marty's book, the abortion side of this issue, they, they put forward a bold front. I think a lot of them are scared to death. They think that their day is about up. And I'm telling you, if we'd be willing to push a little harder... I think we could achieve what we're looking for. I've always said I really believe that my kids' generation will be the, be the generation that ends legalized abortion in America. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that. We could be that generation yeah. if we chose to. But we've got to be able to get the people off the fence. Yeah. In other words, identify and show them the logical inconsistency of their position and then challenge them. This is all I ask people to do. Live out your principles. If this is your real principle, vote for it. Because if it's your principle, I'm, I'm assuming you hold it for a reason, right? And I'm assuming it's a good reason. Why in the world wouldn't you want other people to share a good reason and then vote accordingly? Yeah. doesn't make any sense to me at all. Yeah. But, um, but th this is kind of where we find ourselves. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, that's good. That a lot of and by the way, I, w I want to respond to it too and just say this. Um, if you say... And I'm just going to be a little bit more blunt, so you can be the nice cop, I'll be the bad cop. If you say, if you say I am a Democrat, but I am pro-life, I'm just going to tell you I don't believe you. Um, I'm, I'm going to, and I was speaking with uh, a guy who was the leader of pro-life evangelicals for Biden. And um, the reason that he wanted to vote for Biden was because of Trump's rhetoric. So there's only two options there. Either you don't understand abortion or you just don't understand who Biden is. There is no in-between. So I think, I, I, I don't know that you say that in personal conversation, I don't believe you, but maybe you do, because I think we need to start pushing back against some of this stuff. Um, you may think that you can be logically consistent um, and vote for Biden um, and be pro-life, but, but you can't. And, and I'll just go one step further and say, evangelicals, don't let the Catholics school you on this issue. They've been doing uh, it for about 50 years. Yeah. Can we actually stand up for what we really believe in and then, and then, and then be consistent? Okay, next question. By the question. way, can I, can I just add one last thing? You don't have to say, I don't believe you. You can simply ask a question, right? This is what Greg Kokel talks about in his book, Tactics. Put a pebble in their shoe. Ask them, so you're pro-life? Why? And you'll find that as they describe why they're pro-life, they will be undermining their position in the other side of the issue. Yeah. Right? So let them talk themselves out of their own position. And if they can't, help them along.
Yeah. A point on the previous question is too, when we see that surgical abortions are declining in our country, that doesn't account for the chemical abortions, which we now believe make up 40% of all abortions happening in this country, and they are not reported. And so I think it's really easy to say, oh, you know, abortions are declining, but they're actually just abortions happening that no one is seeing and no one's hearing about. Um, one of the things that I would like for you to address is uh, we've talked about those that are victimized by abortion, those that, those in the womb and the women, but there's the big elephant in the room, the men, and we want them to step up. We want them to be mighty men to lead and protect their children and their families, and yet would you mind addressing what has happened in the last 45, 46 years to our culture as we have taken away the right for men to protect their families, to stand up, and, and what is the beginning of the response for us to turn the tide on that? I think the first thing that needs to happen Let me interject. Is, I'm sorry, Mark. Ahead. we got to go quick with these okay, last I'll two. I'll make it fast. Um, I think the first thing that needs to happen, and I, it, I'm starting to see it happen at more and more pregnancy help organizations, is they're offering post-abortion counseling for men. I have had a, I, I had a young man, when I was at UC Irvine, walk into my office sobbing because he could not stop his girlfriend from taking the life of his unborn child. So the first thing we have to understand is that men are also victims of this and don't get nearly the support that women get. Men are supposed to man up and, gosh, you don't want that kid anyway. It's going to ruin your life. They don't have the same level of emotional support. Men need that support. Secondly, we need to do a better job raising our men in our churches to understand not only the value of life, but the value of their body. Nancy Piercy's got a great book out called Love Thy Body. I highly recommend you get it and read it. Uh, Anthony Eastland's got a great book out called uh, uh, Defending Marriage, 12 Reasons for Sanity. I recommend you get it and read it. And then we start training up our young men because if our young men are doing the right thing, people have it backwards. They think women civilize men. If men will not pay attention to a worldly aspect of women that the, that the world is trying to promote, women will change. I truly believe this, but we've got to start. It used to be, folks, that men were the hallmark of morality in a culture. I don't know where we got this idea. Yeah, actually, I do. Nancy Piercy's book, uh, uh, Total Truth, Chapter 12. It's worth the entire cost of the book. It talks about how we got to where we are today, and it doesn't have to be that way, and we can reverse it. Yeah. All right, last question. Thank you, Mark, very much. I'm a mom of seven and hey. <laughs> very much committed to the pro-life movement. However, I haven't been very actively involved in that. And now uh, Planned Parenthood is literally breathing down our necks here in Chattanooga. Can you speak to some tangible ways and things that we could be doing as a community to push back and say, I mean, more than just say no, like what would you recommend that we physically be doing right now to make sure that we do not have Planned Parenthood in Great Chattanooga? Question. One of the easiest ways to get rid of Planned Parenthood is to um, undermine their support. And one of the best ways to do that is to turn women away from Planned Parenthood. Uh, my friend Brian Westbrook runs an organization called Coalition for Life in Missouri. I would recommend you get a hold of him and ask about his strategies for making that happen. And they have literally closed down every Planned Parenthood facility in Missouri except for the one in St. Louis. And, uh, and they are making uh, inroads there as well. Secondly, um, I don't know how else to say this. If the church will not lead on this issue, we are lost. Did you get that? I'm going to put it right to the camera. If the church will not lead on this issue, we are lost. Because if the church, can't, if the church, the church who in the first century was taking children off of trash heaps and adopting, right, the defective children of the Romans, adopting them into their own families, um, if we aren't willing to do that kind of same thing, we don't, I don't know that we deserve to bear the name of Christ. So 
Our pulpits need to be ringing with the value of human life from the moment of conception to natural death. And, and Reed is correct. We shouldn't have Catholics schooling us on this. We should be right on board with them. They've been carrying the water for us on this issue forever. And so, and some of them have great Catholic friends in the pro-life movement. So our pulpits need to ring with it. We need to be unafraid to talk about this in every public forum. We need to place barriers for women. I'm not talking about standing out in front of Planned Parenthood with a bullhorn yelling at people or videotaping people walking in. You don't have to do that. Provide them with a winsome alternative. Research shows that most women walking into an abortion clinic are just looking for somebody to support them. They, they would rather have their baby, but they're getting all kinds of flack from their significant other, who, by the way, is telling her, if you don't have this abortion, I'm going to leave you. Guess what? He's going to leave her anyway, about 90% of the time, right? She needs support. We need to provide that support. We ought to be investing in maternity homes so that when women find themselves in an untimely pregnancy and they get kicked out of their house, they've got a place to go and stay. Churches should be making that happen. My wife and I were host homes. I'd never ask you to do something I haven't done. My wife and I have been host homes to women. We had one 17-year-old girl live with us, and we couldn't understand why she was tired all the time. She's 17 years old. Parents got to abort or you can't come home, so she came to live with us. You want to know why she was so tired? She had twins. When those twins were born... The whole family came back together, right? Baby changes everything, doesn't it? And it reconnected them to their family. So we need to be the ones leading the way and showing how we do this. Think about it. Planned Parenthood gets paid minimum six, eight hundred bucks for an abortion. Our pregnancy help organizations, they provide all of the all of the services to yeah. all of their clients for free. Now, can we all agree that we're not socialists here? You know it's not really free, right? So guess where the money's got to come from? You. You. You're watching this. The money needs to come from you. And so we need to create a messaging strategy in our churches, and we have to get our churches hooked up very tightly with pregnancy help organizations throughout America. Wherever your region is, you got to get to know these people and connect with them. We need to be using organizations like Embrace Grace, which helps to partner churches yeah, with pregnancy help good. organizations so that these young women have a place to get enfolded into the life of the church, Right? I ask pastors sometimes, wouldn't it be great if every sin somebody committed had a corresponding physical manifestation? And they all go, gosh, yeah, that'd be great to make counseling a lot easier until the light bulb goes on and they realize that that would include them. Suddenly they're not so keen on the idea. Folks, being pregnant is not a sin. Now, how you got pregnant might be, but my Bible, I don't got one of those really weird uh, amplified Bibles that say, um, children, those who are conceived under impeccably uh, social circumstances are a gift from the Lord. Mine doesn't say that. It just says children are a gift from the Lord and a reward. That, by the way, can I see the hands of all the omniscient people in the room? Good call. Okay. People say, how in the world could that child be a gift to a 15-year-old girl? And my response is, I don't know, and neither do you. Yeah. But God declares that children are a gift from the Lord, and we don't know how exactly he's going to work that out. But if i got to choose, I'm going to choose to believe God, and then we're going to protect the lives of those unborn children, and we are going to come alongside their mothers, come alongside that child's father, and we're going to help them, if at all possible, to create intact families, and we're going to nurture them and support them because we are in league with the author of life. Yeah, so good. Well, yeah. Thank you, audience, for being here. And would you give it up for Mark Newman one more time? Thank you for joining us, Mark. Thank you so much for tuning in to this uh, episode of Indie Thinker Live. We look forward to doing many, many more in the future. But bye-bye for now. See you next time. 
Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. Indie Thinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself.